You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For the ministry of the Word, we turn to the reading of Isaiah chapter 53. That chapter of the Old Testament so prophetic of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And we are reading it in connection with that part of the Apostles' Creed where we confess that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified from Lord's Day uh, 15, where we explain that uh, part of the Apostles' Creed in the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's first read Isaiah 53, and then we'll turn to our confession. Who has believed our message? And to whom? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By His knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give Him a portion among the great, and He will divide the spoils with the strong, because He poured out His life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is God's Word. Let's turn now to an echo of God's Word. Our Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15. What do you confess when you say that He suffered? 
during all the time He lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by His suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, He has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did He suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so He freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby, I am assured that He took upon Himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we will follow the wording of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll explore some of the supporting texts in Lord's Day 15 to understand what we mean when we say that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate and that He was crucified. That's all we need to do this afternoon. And we're not concerned with His death as such, but with the events leading up to His death. And each one of them, and all of them together, have significance for our salvation. We believe this already. This is the church of the Lord assembled. We believe this. We sang it together when we sang the Apostles' Creed earlier. And so now as believers, let us explore these confessional statements more deeply. Let's try to understand them better. So this is faith-seeking understanding. And I will lead us in doing this with the following theme and points. Faith seeks understanding about the severity of Christ's suffering. Faith seeks understanding about the severity of Christ's suffering. We'll ask three questions this afternoon. The first question is, why do we say that He bore the sin of the whole human race? That's part of the explanation in the Catechism of the Apostles' Creed. So why do we say that He bore the sin of the whole human race? In the second place, why has the church mentioned Pilate for 2,000 years? The confession about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name of a man is put in there. Pontius Pilate. Why has the church confessed or mentioned the name of Pilate for 2,000 years? And in the third place, what makes crucifixion such a sign of God's curse? So let's first ask, as faith seeks understanding, why do we say that He bore the sin of the whole human race in question and answer 37? And this question and answer is meant to explain just one word, one word of the Apostles' Creed, the word suffered. And it's really taking that word and separating it out of the creedal statement suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's just going to cut off Pontius Pilate for a minute and focus on the word suffered. To make the scriptural confession that Christ suffered during His entire time on earth. One pastor remarked that Christ's blood 
spill that circumcision, he's eight days old then, was part of his atonement for us just as much as his blood poured out on the cross. In other words, his entire life on earth was one of affliction, equivalent with the blood poured out on the cross. Now why was this? Because all of the ceremonies of the law which he had to undergo, such as circumcision, identified him with sinners. Circumcision symbolized the cutting away of the sin of the heart and casting it off, but Christ had no sin to cut away. And having sacrifices offered for Himself encountered the same problem. He was not a sinner. And every occasion like this underlined the misery of God's people who were burdened with sin like the rest of humanity. When we undergo some trouble, when we undergo chastisement, it's to make us better. It's for our correction. In fact, we often feel better after some punishment has been exacted from us for a wrong that we did. We have an inner sense of justice the balance of justice. And we feel it's been served and our consciences are eased when some repair, some reparation has been made. But our Lord Jesus never did anything wrong. He had nothing for which He had to make reparation. As it says in one of the Psalms, He restored what He had not stolen. Rejection of Him Hatred of Him, violence against Him had no grounds whatsoever in Him, but only in us, in our sinful hearts. It hurt Him deeply to see how sin had twisted God's creation, God's good creation, to the point that people might even recognize His purity and then turn around and hate Him for it. In Philippians chapter 2, the verses 5 through 8, we learn that the mere fact that Christ became a man was a humbling experience. Even to be the greatest earthly king, that would be a humbling thing for Christ, since his usual mode of existence was as the king of the entire universe. As God. But He didn't come here as a king, but as a mere child, a poor child. He came, it says, humbly as a servant. And even if that was humbling, not humbling enough, He humbled Himself unto death for our sakes. So He starts King of the universe. He's humbled Himself to death. But then His death was not in bed, in peace among His loved ones, but the most humbling and shameful of all Crucifixion. His entire life was one of suffering. This was, in fact, God's intention. Isaiah 53 says that He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It says that He was smitten by God and afflicted for our sakes. 
We see this in Matthew 4, for instance, when the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness right after He'd been baptized. God purposely pushes Him out where He'll be without food and drink for 40 days and nights and He'll be sorely tempted by the devil. He was suffering the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. We confess this in the Catechism saying that this occurred during His entire time on earth, but especially at the end. We can remind ourselves of Christ's time in the Garden of Gethsemane, that time just before His death. He was troubled. Heaviness came upon Him. Astonishment at His, at his disciples' inability to arm themselves against sin. And He became sorrowful unto death. The holy wrath of God was weighing upon Him. God's protection was being withdrawn as Christ through His human nature would undergo the complete forsakenness on the cross. We cannot know what that was like to be crucified and forsaken by God. God's children have suffered as martyrs and some have physically suffered worse torture than Jesus did. Longer lasting, extremely painful but God's children have been able to go through that with their souls comforted. They know that they belong to God and that He loves them. God is with them. But He was not with Christ any longer on the cross. The mental anguish and the spiritual burden that crushed the Son of God was an infinite weight of divine wrath such as we cannot know. No one else has ever suffered it. Nor would we be able to. It was not Jesus' own troubled conscience bothering Him, for He was righteous. He could not have remorse. He was not even in complete despair, for He finally committed His soul, His spirit into His Father's hands. But God was actively pressing upon His Son the full power of divine wrath. Hell was coming upon the Son of God. The shepherd was being smitten, as the Scriptures say. He was bearing the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. And that's a great, heavy, infinite wrath. Now we ask ourselves why we confess that Christ bore the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. For, this statement might suggest that Christ obtained forgiveness for the whole human race head for head, and that therefore every person in the world will be saved. In other words, it suggests to our minds what's called universalism that Christ died for all people and all people will somehow in the end get saved. Now, such a conclusion would contradict Scripture and is not in agreement with other parts of the Catechism. Scripture says no one will be saved apart from true faith, so we can safely rule out universalism based on Scripture and based on experience that many people die rejecting God. And yet the words stand against the sin of the whole human race. Why 
do we confess this? Well, the first supporting text is Isaiah 53, which we read. Those for whom he suffers are the we and the us of Isaiah 53. One would assume they are believers, for we confess sin in Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Unbelievers don't care about that, and they don't say that. Only believers do. So based on this text, we would expect our confession to say that He bore God's wrath against the sins of all those who repent and believe. But note that the Catechism is not talking about the specific sins as if there is a quantity of them involved. It speaks of sin as such, the sin of the whole human race. The second supporting text is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. And there we read that there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. In the context of 1 Timothy 2, we read that the church should pray for rulers and kings. And this is talking about unbelieving rulers and kings just the same as believing ones. And we read there, this is good because God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then come the words about the one mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Paul then continues by saying that for this very reason, because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all men, Paul was appointed a herald and apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles or the non-Jews do not have different mediators and different gods for their salvation. There's only one God in heaven above and one mediator bringing us to God and therefore Paul is busy getting the message out to more people than just the Jews. That God wants all men to be saved means God is calling people from every language and every tribe and every people. If this was not clear already, now after Christ's coming, it is obvious that there's only one mediator for all people, no matter what people group they belong to. And Paul emphasizes his calling to the Gentiles by saying in 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. When the Scriptures say that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the same idea that's in view. God loving the world. The world that God loved means all the people groups of the world, not just the Jews. Thus, whoever believes in Him, Jew, Greek, Italian, French, Dutch, English, Chinese, Korean, Filipino, etc., shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ is for the world. As Revelation 5, verse 9 says, you to the Lamb of God representing Jesus Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
This is why we confess that He bore the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. When He died, He made no such distinctions, but laid down His life for the salvation of the world. That is a wonderful blessing of the grace of God which forms one of the grounds for the church's mission to the world, for the love of those who are lost, which has ensured that the church is truly being established all over the earth. Christ laid the groundwork. The benefit for us, beloved, the benefit for us is that we can be fully assured that He fully paid for all our sins. If we believe in Him, then we have eternal life. It is His gift for us. If we are part of the human race and we believe in Him, then we are saved. Period. He bore the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. I don't have to wish that I were German instead of Jewish if I were Jewish. And that's exactly how this this text and concept should have been preached during the Second World War. And so today, I don't have to wish that I had a Western higher education. I shouldn't be dissatisfied with my race or color or think that Christ might not have any love for me. If I am in the human race and I believe in Him, I am saved. That's the import of our confession here when we say that He bore God's wrath against the sin of the whole human race. During His whole time on earth, He was bearing God's wrath against our sins. And thus, He has fully redeemed our body and soul from hell and obtained for us God's favor and eternal life. That's why we confess this as we do. It gives us confidence for our faith, our salvation, and for spreading the Gospel. And so that answers the first question. Why do we say He suffered for the sin of the whole human race? The word suffered cannot simply stand alone. It's coupled with these other words under Pontius Pilate. So let's ask our second question. Why has the church mentioned Pilate for 2,000 years? our answer is that Christ was condemned by an earthly judge and so He freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. And that's why He suffered particularly under Pontius Pilate as judge. Now that situates Christ's death historically. happened at a certain time and place. You can check the annals of history and if it says that's when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, and that's when Christ was crucified. But there's a lot more going on here. First of all, let's note that submitting to Pilate's judgment was a demeaning thing, humbling thing for him who is the judge of all. He was abased and he was abused. His heart knew the injustice of it all and yet he submitted to it. He suffered there at Pilate's tribunal and that suffering has a particular character and thus received a particular mention in the creed. So now we're not just talking about his suffering during his whole life, but particularly there with Pontius Pilate standing in the judge's, sitting in the judge's seat and Christ before him. At issue is the fact that Pilate 
was an officially appointed keeper of justice. The Spirit teaches us in the Bible that everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for these have been established by God. Romans 13. Pilate was a governor and judge appointed by God. In Psalm 82, God declares to the judges of His people that they're very close and important to Him. He even calls them, with a lowercase g, gods and sons of the Most High. This emphasizes how closely their work is to flow out of God's work and God's law. They're His servants for the well-being of society, for the protection of the poor and weak. Pilate was one of those men. Judges were not the only officials who were highly honored by God. So were his kings and his priests and prophets. All of these were special offices in Israel established by God. Romans 13 teaches us to extend the same respect to those in office who are not part of the theocratic Old Testament nation. The key to Pilate's mention in the creed is his office. His task, that means. In God's order of things, official tasks are very important. Office and calling come from God. He appoints, He oversees, and He holds accountable. So God honors what He has put in place. Through the mouth of Pilate, God speaks. Particularly here. It says in Isaiah 53 that the Lord had laid on His suffering servant the iniquity of us all. Well, brothers and sisters, He did this through Pilate. When Pilate committed Christ to the hands of the Jews for crucifixion, God in heaven spoke the final word against our sins. He pronounced the guilty verdict for His Son was stepping in as a surety for us. Jesus Christ stood up in place of us and said, These are My children. Think of Me as their Father. Take Me in their place. Or, These are My people. I am their ruler. I am their king. And so He could justly stand in our place according to His office as a mediator. If He was just another private person like one man on a soccer team, with others, and could not pay for us. But He came as the coach representing the team or as the pastor representing His flock, and He said, take Me and leave them be. I will submit to the entirety of what they deserve. Judge Me. God heard His Son and rejoiced in His willing heart. All the while, that God poured out His holy wrath upon sin, yet He loved the servant heart of His Son. So he's acting in justice, and yet He has this deep love for the one upon whom He pours out His justice. For the servant heart in Him. God's wrath, brothers and sisters, is not a mere emotion. That's the first way that we think of anger. It's an emotion. But for God... It's a judicial, it's an official act. Judicial meaning as a judge, official in his office act of passing judgment on our sin by passing judgment on the Christ, the Anointed One. 
His Son put Himself through infinite forsakenness. The infinite forsakenness of hell. And cried out asking how His Father could forsake Him. It was horrible and it was frightening beyond description. Pilate is mentioned so that we will never doubt that the verdict against us has been taken away. Someone else received the sentence as he stood there in our place. We should have been standing there with the guilty verdict put on us, the sentence applied, and infinite wrath upon us from which we could never recover. We would be in hell forever. But Jesus Christ stood in our place and the judge spoke through Pilate, the official judge. And that, brothers and sisters, should comfort us that God will honor the judgment of Pilate as His own, for He honors the offices He has established. And that means the verdict on your sin was pronounced and the judgment was carried by someone else. On those days when you know that your deeds have clearly, without any doubt, your deeds have put you under condemnation. You know you're guilty of offending God. You know you're guilty of offending God once again. When you know that in God's courtroom you would be pronounced guilty, then pray in Christ's name. Pray for God's acquittal and ask for His peace through His Son who already received the just sentence. Isaiah 53 again, My righteous servant will justify many with our faith, faith, with our faith placed firmly in Him. We seek a deeper understanding of His work and we go away with our faith strengthened. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the beautiful thing we should come away with when we remember Pilate. Remembering Pilate leads us to remembering Christ and recognizing that He truly took our judgment. So that leaves us with one more question this afternoon. What makes crucifixion such a sign of God's curse? Our Lord suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified. Note again, we're not yet talking about His death on the cross, but about His being nailed up there and enduring that form of death. Why that form? Because the crucified one was cursed by God. But what makes crucifixion such a sign of God's curse? What about being beheaded? Wouldn't that be a sign of a curse? Or what about drowning? In medieval times, this was used as a test to see whether one, the one who, um, whether one was guilty and one was cursed or not. Why crucifixion? Well, this has its roots in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23, there's a curse pronounced on anyone hung on a tree. This means that in God's view, death by hanging is more accursed 
than death by beheading or drowning. Or at least this was so among His people in preparation for the coming and the death of Christ. The hung man was lifted up off the earth. He was unacceptable to the earth because of his capital offense. But he was not acceptable, therefore, to heaven. And so there he was hung halfway in between. That's the symbolism of hanging. Neither fit for heaven or earth. Now, crucifixion is not hanging as such. Rather, it's a far more cruel way of doing the same thing. The victim is lifted up between heaven and earth and allowed to struggle for hours, sometimes for days, in excruciating agony. Our Lord had to hang on the cross to symbolize the truth, to to live out this truth that He was bringing Himself under the terrible curse of God that lay upon our sins. Galatians 3, verse 13 Christ became, or He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So it's not complicated. It's simply because God called cursed that kind of death. And even a body so hung after its death. It's because of that that crucifixion was such a sign of God's curse. God said so. And therefore, the manner of Christ's death was not in any way indifferent or haphazard. It wasn't just by chance, but the Lord God directed the Romans through His providence to develop this cruel kind of punishment to use it on their slaves and subject peoples so that it would be applied to the Son of God for our salvation. Horrible. Very horrible torturous, cruel, yet necessary, prophesied, and completed. This was to bear the fullness of the curse God had pronounced on us in Genesis 3 after the fall into sin. Christ saved us from eternal death. So we have a Savior who suffered all His life for the salvation of people all over the world who subjected himself to an officially appointed judge to hear the verdict of guilty on him for our sins, and who let himself be nailed to the cross to receive the punishment and curse which our sins deserved. In every instance, he took our place. He took our suffering. He took our verdict. And he took our sentence. He did all of this willingly in deep sacrificial love. And this is good news. It's good news for sinners. And you must turn in faith and believe that He did this for you. We know He didn't do it for Himself. So therefore, heed the promise of the Gospel that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. No matter what tribe or nation you come from, God so loved your tribe or nation 
the world, all its cultures and people groups, and He is gathering His elect from everywhere. The severity of the suffering of Christ is the greatest indicator, not just brothers and sisters, of the depths of the wrath of God, but of the depths of the love of God for poor sinners. And in that, we take heart. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.